Take a network break, grab a virtual donut, and come along as we rake up this week's tech news items and stuff them into brown paper bags of analysis. We've got stories on new products from Extreme, Google Cloud announcing network visibility tools, Microsoft jumping onto DNS over HTTPS, and much more. First, a little business. One of our sponsors today is Thousand Eyes. They give you performance visibility from every user to every app over any network, internal and external, so you can migrate to the cloud, troubleshoot faster, and deliver exceptional user experiences. Sign up for a free account at thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers and get a free t-shirt while you're there. Our other sponsor is InterOptic. They are your reliable data interconnect company. Stop paying OEM prices for optics and get brand equivalent transceivers at a fraction of the cost. Find out more at interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. Last but not least, stay tuned after the news for a sponsored conversation on application performance monitoring with SolarWinds, including details on their SaaS-based suite of APM tools that include web app and user experience monitoring and log analysis and management. All right, let's get to some stuff. Uh, Greg, we got a couple of FUs this week. Yeah, this one's a bit weird. This uh, person's writing in saying, love the show, listen every week. Thanks. Nice to hear that. Um, yes. He said, I have to disagree with me on the need for SD-WAN standards. Now, I think he says, I think your comparison of a router and SD-WAN is unfair. You're correct that there's no standard for a router, but read the ingredients list on the back of your favorite router box, and you'll see hundreds of IETF and other standards. Uh, I agree that we can't shoehorn SD-WAN into a standard, but we can create standards to help us talk about SD-WAN with a common language. The the MEF or the Metro Ethernet Forum, full disclosure, he's at the MEF 19 right now, is focusing on common APIs and a language for SD-WAN and other technologies in the same way that MEF 2.0 doesn't specify Ethernet frame for formats or SFP technology, they aren't specifying protocols and technologies. I remember the old days when Carrier A's EVPL worked completely differently from Carrier B's and the MEF fixed that. So it basically goes on in that same sort of line. My point would be is that standards work when we reach a point of stability in the market. And Mm -hmm. when you have a transition in the market where there's a lot of change going on, you don't want to stop that change by forcing standards into place. All right. You want the, the technology transition to happen out for the best technology to win. And the one that customers, and that's a combination of what is the best actual technology from a scientific point of view it's the best technology from what the vendors can actually produce because their competency and the ability of their organizations to consume a technology and turn it into something is part of the factoring here and there's yes. also what customers will buy and those are three different things if that makes sense so three very different things and best is a very problematic word in in, in regard to standards because it's not necessarily mm-hmm. about what is scientifically or technically the best there's also influence in the standards body, uh, customer adoption, yep. that kind of thing. Yeah, that, that put their fingers on the scale. Yeah, so in the sense that, so while SD-WAN is in a state of flux, you're not going to get SD-WAN vendors to very much care. And I think that SD-WAN... Cust- <laughs> Absolutely not. Because <laughs> they're all <laughs> they iterating. They want to get customers first, yes. And so I'm a bit concerned that if we suddenly start putting APIs and try to fix the APIs into a, this fixed format, while there's a whole bunch of stuff happening underneath. Like we're still seeing... Uh, lots of innovation around path dynamics. Do you want to do per flow dynamics? Do you want to do per packet? Do you mm-hmm. want to enable forward error correction? Do you want to enable a TCP proxy so the forwarding error correction? So to me, even defining the basics of SD-WAN technology is fraught with danger. And what I mean by danger is that you'll end up locking feature sets into place like RIP and OSPF and BGP before we have time to mature them out and work out all of the bits, the extra bits. Instead of trying to refit the extra bits later, let's just wait a bit and then yeah. see how much competency the industry can demonstrate before we come back and say, no, no, now's the time to stand us. I think that's what I was trying to say. Now, the MEF 
the question here is whether the MF, as a Metro Ethernet forum, is the right organisation to be defining SD-WAN standards. And my point would be is no. And they are an organisation which is mostly focused on the Metro Ethernet. I don't understand why they would be defining branch networking and what responsibility or credibility they would have in that space. And historically, I haven't regarded the MEF as a place where I would go to for standards. So everybody keeps talking about the MEF because it's been smart enough to jump into an empty gap and justify its existence as it becomes less relevant going forward. But whether it's the right place to develop SD-WAN standards or not, I'm yet to be convinced that they are. I don't think that they are the right place. I think there's probably it should be in the ITF. But whether the ITF is, you know, holding off or because nobody's initiating SD-WAN standards, I don't know. So we'll just have to wait and see. Again, time to wait, I think. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I do agree with you on this one. Let the market sort of work itself out a little bit. And we're just seeing SD-WAN continue to evolve anyway, where it's sort of migrating from one thing into another uh, as sort of a, a holistic... Uh, the whole enchilada of branch management down the line, adding security mm. functions and so on. So we, we still need time to let the market develop before we decide to have to worry about interoperability. And frankly, we also need to see more SD-WAN adoption uh, in terms of its market share and mm, market mm. size. It's still relatively small compared to something like routing and switching. Yeah, it's only so, like $100, $200 million at most. Yeah, ta- talking about standards yeah. is a little too early. Although at some point we will need some mm-hmm. degree of interoperability among SD-WAN vendors, if I need to get from branch one of SD-WAN vendor A to branch yep. my branch two, that's SD-WAN vendor B, <laughs> having them not interoperate is bad, but that's not a problem we're grappling with at the moment. Yeah, and I mean, if you read the MEF-1 version of the SD-WAN standards, most of that's obsolete because NFV isn't going to happen the way that they think it does. And I don't see the vendors suddenly lining up to take this into their existing products. Um, I expect to see that everything will run in a container, not in an NFV instance, right? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you can say, well, we can adapt the NFV into that, right? Well, the point is that you shouldn't have defined any of this until you get to the point where there's a convergence around a set of technologies. You know, you just should. this is not the time for standards while a market is changing so rapidly. We've already seen, you know, the first generation of SD-WAN pretty much done it's finished it's baked and now we're into the second generation and as i've said before i believe there's two more iterations of sd-wan so now's not the time to write standards probably further down the pipeline but anyway yeah i think anyway thank you for reaching out uh we love to have the conversation and we're glad folks are listening and engaged enough to actually take the time to write us that's cool for sure and i'm always happy to be called out i want to hear (laughs) that's why we have the fu if you don't if i didn't explain maybe i didn't explain myself well enough or you know you can also change my mind (laughs) i I often do change my mind and uh, it is possible yeah very possible it's not a very big mind it shouldn't be out on its own really (laughs) (laughs) don't sell yourself short uh we do have a second fu this is actually not so much an fu as a a a personal request from you greg yeah i i've been i don't know about you drew but i get a lot of this like a survey shows that the moon is turning into cheese you know that's tons of surveys it's an easy way for a vendor to you know they reach out to an organization let's get some questions that suit our end goals write a survey around it and then it looks like data but yeah (laughs) and i mean i've been guilty of this i've done this sort of work where you know we conduct we write the questions we send them out we get the test results back we extract the extract the survey responses back and write a white paper that sort of says what we wanted it to say all along right Mm -hmm. and we've all done it right and so what i wanted to do is do a survey that has no point that is it's not being paid for by anybody it hasn't been sponsored 
And uh, I would like it to reflect the questions that you would like to see on a survey, right? So here's, the th here's some ones that I want to, here's some samples. Here's the ones that I want to know. Has your service provider met your expectations for their product? Yes, no. Has your service provider provided reasonable tech support when you needed it? Do you think your service provider knows what it's doing, right? These are the sorts of questions that I think we actually want to hear about, but nobody's going to ask them because um, vendors don't want to see their service providers, who are their customers, <laughs> by the way, criticized for being rubbish. You know, I've said, right. so what I'd like to do is, A, I'd like your help in preparing the survey. And when it comes out, I'll ask you to fill it out. So be ready for that. But the second one is, what questions do you want? In there, if you could ask any questions to other networking engineers on the packet push platform, we'll ask for it and we'll share it out. What are the questions that you'd want to see in that sort of survey? So if you send them over to packetpushers.net slash fu or email them to us at the packet pushers, so packetpushers at gmail.com and just put fu survey at the front or something like that, then we can take that and, and I'll add them in as best I can, you know. Uh, okay, so the, the idea is here as a survey without a particular agenda that it's trying to push. No, and I'll we'll set it up on a survey questionnaire platform, probably a Google form. Everybody, and then we'll push it out on social media, and then see what it gets. This is your chance to have the survey you might want instead of the one that somebody else wrote with a particular purpose in mind. <laughs> the networking crowdsource survey, I like. <laughs> see, just having an experiment. So let me know. Okay. Yeah. If you're interested or you got a question, uh, hit us up in FU. It's packetpushers.net slash FU, uh, or just drop us an email or hit us up on Twitter. Lots of ways to get in touch. Yeah. Yeah. DM it. But anonymous, you know, if you want to be anonymous, just that's fine. No problems there. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's do a little news. Uh, Extreme Networks, they've announced new software to automate adding and removing switches to their data center fabric. The software is called Fabric Automation. That's a nice name. The company also announced two new data center switches in the SLX line, the SLX 9150 Leaf Switch and the SLX 9250 Spine Switch. Each of these switches runs a native virtual machine that can host the Fabric Automation software, so you don't even need to run Fabric Automation on a separate server. So, feels a little late, does it to you? Like, this is a pretty basic Ethernet switch automation platform. Does configuration of the basic features needed to deploy and operate an ECMP Ethernet spine for an enterprise data center? That's what I got out of it. Did I miss anything? No, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Uses BGP and EVPN, as you might expect, but it only works with the SLX switches, which is the old Brocade stuff out of the Extreme product line. So yes. considering how long Extreme has had Brocade under the hood there for a while, it seems very long for them to get this out the door. Maybe they had, took a long time to make a decision about their future direction here and wanted to take a breath. Uh, they talk about day zero fabric infrastructure. That's the create, read, update, delete. So it's pretty much like a stand up a ECMP infrastructure and we'll do that part. And then we're over. So no day one, no day two that I saw. I uh, know there is a day one and day two as well. Uh, so they integrate with like vCenter. So if a new VM pops up uh, on the fabric, uh, fabric automation, they say we'll automatically provision the VLAN and that kind of thing. Yeah. Again, first generation. <laughs> that was like Arista's, right, it's, no, the first it's version of Arista's cloud vision did that, you know, like five years <laughs> I know. ago. So, yes. I, you know, I think this is good. I'm pleased to think that, see that um, the Brocade SLX, which is, is the data center strategy for extreme networks, they're they have different, they've sort of put the vendors into different categories. And I believe the Brocade SLX is focusing on the data center. So this is a good step forward. I like it that it's simple. It's plain. It does the necessary things to get you started. And on the other hand, there's not many features. There's not much day two operations. There are other products out there that do a hell of a lot more than this. 
maybe for a much more complicated price or maybe for a lot more pain to get them all going. Like Cisco's ACI is enormously complicated. Right. And really, do you want all that or do you want something simpler? So the question here is, which one do customers want? Which one do they buy? And that's a decision they have to make. So I'm, I'm sort of not criticizing the fact that it doesn't have features. I'm just highlighting that if you're expecting an all singing, all dancing robot to help you out, you're not getting it here. Right. That's not what this is. It's not as quite as ambitious as a full SDN uh, deployment. But I guess I feel like, yes, Extreme needs to do some product rationalization because they've got so many components they're trying to integrate. Mm. So having a very clean story about what they're doing in the data center and the, the product line they're behind makes sense. Having a good, solid, simple automation capability makes sense. But yeah, it's it's just nothing groundbreaking. No. And if you're running NSX or some other overlay technology over the top here or Kubernetes or whatever, this is perfect though, right? So Sure. Right. It's not a criticism. Yeah. It's just that this is this that this is what it does. It doesn't do seem to do anymore. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Extreme uh, ramp this up a bit and add more capabilities as they go. But but here's the starting point: build the mm. fabric, set it up, keep it automated, off you go. I guess it'll be driven by my gut. My gut feel here is that they'll release this. This does what they need for the customers who are building something over the top. This automates the deployment, puts them on parity with most of the other vendors in the sense that yes. this is the basic, this is now table stakes for this type of stuff, I think, is my sense of it. And the question now is, do customers ask for something else? And if enough customers ask, they'll probably spend the money to take it to the next level. Absolutely. That, that seems sensible to me. Mm. So now you get to decide if you don't want it. But not a... <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, they did put out a, a decent data sheet. We have a link to it in the show notes as well as a press release if you want to go check it out and see if there are details that we didn't cover. Oh, yeah. Props for that, by the way. Straight up. Just bang, bang, bang. I really Right. Easy. And you don't have to give away any information to get the data sheet, which tip of the cap to extreme for that. And other yeah. vendors should take note. It was slick. I didn't have to read a 40-page epic that had... Uh, <laughs> You know, a pile of business waffle about CIO needs and the transition oh, to, you know, it's like just bang, 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 bang. Really, yes. really, really good. You know, I will say this. That's where Extreme is innovating here. They're they're actually giving you information and not a lot of marketing malarkey. So, mm. yeah, well done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Quick break to tell you about one of our sponsors, Thousand Eyes. They help organizations deliver business critical service by providing performance visibility and actionable intelligence from every user over any network to every app, including Office 365 and Salesforce. They have cloud agents, enterprise agents, and endpoint agents to gather unique insights on network behavior and topologies and how that affects application performance. With Thousand Eyes, you can generate performance data through active monitoring techniques from global vantage points, quickly pinpoint root causes of device faults, congestion, DDoS attacks, hijacks, etc. You can share event dashboards, metrics, and visualizations with vendors and partners to collaboratively resolve problems faster. There's a special offer for Packet Pushers listeners. You can sign up for a free account at thousandeyes.com slash Packet Pushers. That's thousandeyes.com slash Packet Pushers. And while you're there, snag yourself a snazzy Thousand Eyes t-shirt. Thousand Eyes, thrive in a connected world. And we just did a podcast with them. They released a cloud performance report. It's the second uh, generation of that report where they're actually measuring the big five cloud providers. Which is handy because if you are actually someone who actually gets the personal touch from the cloud vendors, you might be able to bash them over the head with why is their network so bad. (laughs) (laughs) If you're one of the select few. Yeah, yeah. You could sort of say why is this. Uh, It is a problem because a lot of this stuff is quite uh, opaque. You don't know what's happening inside of those networks or inside of those systems and you will need monitoring tools. And increasingly you'll find we are talking about monitoring tools here because they are more important almost than the infrastructure that sits underneath these days. Something I've been saying for five years, I believe. And that's a nice teaser to an upcoming story, which we'll get to. Uh, yeah. But first, 
Google, they have acquired Cloud Simple. This is a company that specializes in putting vSphere workloads into the public cloud. The acquisition is meant to bolster the adoption of Google's cloud platform by offering streamlined support of vSphere. You know, this is what happens when you listen to salespeople, right? You, the salespeople goes down there and then comes back and he says, you know, the problem is that our cloud is so different from enterprise that they don't want to use our cloud. What can we do to make it so that our cloud is just like the enterprise? So you say, well, yep. I'll go and buy a company which just lets me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then, and this has all the stench on it of like Oracle thinking. You know, we'll just do whatever the salespeople tell us to do, you know, product by sales. And that's generally not a good idea. But that said, let me just explain it because we also hear from cloud experts uh, all the time that moving your existing apps to the cloud is a bad idea. Like it's just not dumb, right? And the point is that if customers just lift up their vSphere workloads and dump them into the cloud, Google's going to get blamed for them not working because customers aren't going to blame themselves. <laughs> so sure. now Google is spending time and resources to make their cloud look like an enterprise data center, but we all know that cloud host, you know, putting stuff into the public cloud doesn't get you the results you want or doesn't work as well. You have all sorts of problems. You can't get the right server or the latency is all wrong. And so this just looks like a really stupid idea that makes perfect sense because that's what salespeople are telling you to do. I guess I'm going to push back a little bit because I feel like this is Google seeing the success of Amazon partnering with VMware, which happened a couple of years ago. And I think we were like, why would you just take your entire VMware workload and duplicate it on AWS? That makes no sense. And yet people did. And yeah. so Google, which is trailing behind AWS and Azure in trying to attract enterprise customers, needs a way to get folks onto their cloud. And so simplifying that migration of on-premises vSphere workloads to their public cloud makes perfect sense if that's the way you're going to get enterprise customers. And it does seem like that's the way enterprise customers are coming into the cloud. Yeah. Well, I mean, AWS is saying you can pick up your vSphere and then run your vSphere over here. So VMware on AWS is not, you're not adding cloud problems to your existing enterprise infrastructure. You're rehoming it just in someone else's data center. Yeah. And that's a completely different proposition to uh, migrating your vSphere workloads into GCP and pretending that they're now public cloud. I think there's a, there is a, there's a fairly substantial difference there in mindset. And if you've got some sort of CIO banging his hands on the table saying, we are going to the public cloud data center is going to shut down in two years, this, uh, this is the sort of thing that will get Google a business, but I'm not sure you'll get happy customers in the long run. Well, that's a different story, yes. Yes. Absolutely. So, you know, I do think this is mostly a stupid idea, but then again, there's plenty of stupid people in enterprise IT. I think we might have said that a few times before. <laughs> Once or twice. <laughs> Still, easier to fit, you know, if you've got some sort of an arbitrary goal or if you're on a bonus plan that says everything goes into the cloud, you know, who am I to judge? There is a, an issue here, which I think executives are feeling pressure to digitally transform their enterprises. And one easy way to do that is to take what you're doing on premises and just essentially mirror it in the cloud and say, we are now in the cloud. Uh, check yeah. that. Let me get mm -hmm. my bonus. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not really <laughs> what cloud is for, but you know, again, enterprises right. make interesting decisions. Well, we've seen plenty of that over the last three or four or five years of cloud. And I think, imagine that we'll see people make the same mistakes consistently going forward. And that's probably just a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, moving on, but sticking with Google, you uh, just dropped in a story about Google and Vodafone. Yeah, Vodafone announced that they're using Google Cloud. Now, some of the press ran away with this as Vodafone's migrating to the Google Cloud, but that's not true. What they're actually doing is using it as a strategic 
platform for just data analytics and machine learning. So they're actually moving mm. customer data up there and mining it. So the two things I wanted to say is uh, Google Cloud's managed to sign up Vodafone. <laughs> Yay, Google. Uh, and B, yep. yep, it's not moving their enterprise data center into the Google Cloud. <laughs> it's just moving their data analytics and machine. So this is a cloud-native type of an approach where – um, and a quote here, Google Cloud today announced that Vodafone, one of the world's leading telecom and technology services companies, has selected Google Cloud to host its strategic cloud platform for data analytics, business intelligence and machine learning, which Vodafone calls Neuron. So mm. just be careful when you listen to these blog posts, you know, you see these uh, articles to just deparse them a little and look for the truth in amidst the hype because a lot of the uh, the people who rewrote those articles or rewrote the press release assumed that Vodafone was moving to the cloud and that is not the case here. They're just setting up data analytics and ML. Right. And going back to our previous conversation, this is a sensible use of cloud. This is what cloud mm. is good for. Yes, as a counterpoint. Yeah. Don't migrate yeah. your vSphere VMs up there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, one more Google story. Uh, the company has rolled out Network Intelligence Center for Google Cloud, and the goal is to make it easier to monitor hybrid and multi-cloud networks, verify connectivity, and optimize performance in the cloud. Uh, let me just walk through this. There are a couple of modules. The most interesting, I think, is um, the connectivity tests. It lets network engineers test reachability based on a configuration change. Google's using formal verification in these tests. You may have heard us talk about formal verification in companies like Forward Networks and Veriflow, uh, where it's essentially a mathematical model to say what's going to happen with this configuration change. Yeah, so this is intent-based networking, as most companies would call it. They're actually identifying all of the network infrastructure in the Google Cloud, applying formal verification math to check all the connectivity, and then you can define your tests so that any change, if those tests break, you don't implement that change first, if that makes sense. And it does the visualization. So you've got to have a visualization of your network to be able to do formal verification on it. So you get the visualization for free, but what you really want is the formal verification, which checks your intent to see that it's valid against a known list of tests. Uh, that's the other module they uh, announced, which is in beta, network topology. It lets you see the entire global network within GCP, not just individual VPCs, uh, and also lets you see how your Google Cloud networks connect to the public internet and also yeah. provide some performance metrics. And in the blog post that they put out about it, they're talking about the person that they're quoting is working on a HIPAA-compliant file sharing, so healthcare. And what he's using it for is the formal verification is being used to audit the posture, the security posture, to make sure that the configuration matches the intent and quickly troubleshoot network configuration issues. So if, if the network configuration gets outside of template, they can know about it and get back in there and bring it back into HIPAA compliance, which is not something we've heard a lot of the intent-based people talk about. So this is really a technology that I've only seen previously in the enterprise, so forward networks and uh, the one that uh, VMware acquired. I can't think, bring it to mind right now, but this Veriflow. is Veriflow. That's it. And then Cisco's got a, an early version of an emerging technology around doing formal verification. They're really the only people who've got the chops to be able to bring that sort of science to it. And this is a real differentiator for Google Cloud, I think. They've got something here that is quite unique. AWS just sort of says, networks, your fault. And in fact, the more your fault it is, the more money we make out of your errors, you know. <laughs> and there are entire consultancies around reducing network costs in, in AWS. And Azure is just a bit of a mess in this place. It's networking is a bit... So, you know, I, I think this is possibly worth looking at and thinking about asking your cloud provider or putting this in your plan so that you know. You shouldn't have to go and get a third-party product to do this fairly core competency thing, in my view. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great differentiator for Google because in our conversations with folks, we hear that the networking aspect of public cloud can get very complicated very quickly. Uh, visibility mm. can be an issue. Performance can be an issue. So by exposing all this capability, Google, I think, could win over those uh, network engineers who are responsible <laughs> for <laughs> Well, and, and the interesting part here is that with Google Anthos, if you're using Google Anthos on-prem, this tool would extend into that. So there's an Istio service mesh that would be in that part of it. But, you know, bringing all that together consistently is quite a feature, I think. It is. Although we should say that this connectivity test feature where it's testing configurations does have limits. Uh, it's only working on the configurations. It's not the actual data plane. So you mm. could run this test that says, yes, this node can reach that node according to the way it's configured, but an mm. underlying data plane issue may actually block that connectivity. So yeah. uh, keep in mind that it's operating at the configuration layer, not the data plane layer. Uh, mm. The second thing is it can't test VM instances that have been configured to act in the data plane as routers, firewalls, NAT gateways, VPNs, and so on. That seems like an issue that Google will need to address as they uh, advance this. <laughs> and if you talk to the people, like I've spoken to the people from Forward Networks, just how hard it was for them to do that. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> so this might be a Google sort of, you know, racing something out the door and then iterating on it later. Who knows? But yeah. This is why it's a beta. Yeah. yeah, they, yeah. They've got some bugs to work out. And they actually, in the blog post they wrote about it, they note that there's a lot of ways these configurations could work out mathematically. So... Uh, that's why they also note that test results could take up to 10 minutes. So these are intense computations going on yeah. behind the scenes. Uh, so. Yeah. so if you want something that's really proven and battle-tested, get yourself into Veriflow or Forward Networks and then see how you go from there. But this is hopeful that you know if you're in the Google Cloud, you wouldn't need to buy a third-party platform to do this. And kudos to Google for trying to differentiate uh, mm. on its cloud platform. I do think so, yes. Uh, and just to round this out, so these two things that we talked about are in beta release. They, Google also announced alpha releases of a performance dashboard where you can track packet loss and memory over Google Cloud and a firewall metrics and insights module where you can do some firewall rule optimization. Those are in alpha releases, so very, very early. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, Microsoft has announced it will support DNS over HTTPS, better known as DOE. Uh, DNS over HTTPS encrypts DNS queries. Microsoft is going to support this in its Windows client. And the move is designed to improve user privacy by protecting DNS requests from third-party and ISP snooping. Uh, Mozilla and Google are the other big names that support DOH. Yeah, uh, the Microsoft blog post is a little vague. Did you get the sense that it was sort of saying, we're going to do it, but not quite now, but we're putting it out there that we want to. So if anybody wants to complain, this is your chance, sort of thing. <laughs> I didn't quite get a pick up on that, but I could see that being in there, yes. Yeah, so they're sort of saying that'll be in a future version of their browsers and the operating system and things like that. So the point here is that DNS over HTTPS lets you encrypt the first session at very low cost or low impact between you and your DNS server. The weakness in DNS over HTTPS is that there's only two uh, DNS servers in the world today that do that, uh, Cloudflare and Google, and a lot of the other people are sort of dragging their heels. So we're seeing a lot of bloviation from various DNS firewall makers who are saying, oh, DNS over HTTPS is bad and it stops things from happening and it prevents us from doing things. And there's going to be a lot of hassle here because a lot of speed bumps in wireless networks, for example, rely on triggering off a DNS. They see the DNS query and that's when they throw up the page that you do the login so they can capture your Facebook details. Right. All right. So a lot of things are going to break, but who cares? Because things break all the time and try not to shed tears for that. And the other thing is if you're a DNS firewall maker, um, you're going to be upset. And a lot of those people who are in the DNS industry are not happy with this. They put a lot of effort into DNS over TLS 
uh, over TCP a few years ago in the form of DNSSEC. Um, and DNSSEC does much more. Not only does it validate, encrypt it from end to end, it also validates whether the domain response that you're getting is legitimate. Right. right. So really what we wanted was DNSSEC and DNS over TCP, but nobody really wanted to implement it or maintain it. So DNS over HTTPS is where we're at, which is a, a severe backdown. With DNS firewalls, my view here is that they're cheap and easy way to control what users are accessing. Right. You just put a DNS, you tell the operating system to point to it, and it's really cheap. Right? You just populate it with a list of domains that you shouldn't have access to. But the, the simple fact is that with DNS over HTTPS, applications are embedding the DNS lookups inside their app. So apps like Facebook and Uber and Chrome browsers and even web apps actually have their own DNS lookups. So they instead of looking up your DNS server, they go off and look up the company's own DNS servers. Mm -hmm. to resolve the anycast address. So they don't want to trust anybody else anymore. They don't trust your operating system. They don't want to do that. And so if you think that DNS over HTTPS is going to prevent that, no, that it, it's here. That's or, That horse is already bolted. There's lots of apps already in the app stores around the place that are already doing this, and including web apps. Right. I, I guess I feel like you're sort of glossing over the issue around DNS web filtering, where folks, mm -hmm. enterprises, rightly want to be able to control access to particular resources on the internet yeah. and DNS security, DNS filtering is one of those ways to do that. And that breaks that. I mean, I'm even thinking as a, a father at home with two kids who are on the internet all the time using open DNS, mm -hmm. I don't want that broken either because there are websites I don't want my kids going to. So I think there are legitimate concerns about uh, DOH. Yeah. Th so in that sense, but the point here is that your home router should be DOH enabled. Right, and then it's fixed. But if OpenDNS can't look at the web page request and say, "Oh no, that's a yeah. forbidden domain," well, as soon as unless they... it has to do another IP yeah. lookup to see. So these companies have to implement DNS over HTTPS. So Cisco Umbrella, BlueCat, you know, all of these companies doing DNS firewalls, which, which mm -hmm. DNS filtering in DNS firewalls, yeah. they'll just have to enable DOH on their servers, and then we'll have to point at them. But that was never enough. That's just hacking something that happened to exist because historically we couldn't. Um, encrypt DNS because, you know, 20 years ago, the idea of encrypting anything was just way too difficult and hard. And at the time, it was judged okay because mass surveillance was not practical. Times change. Mass surveillance is practical. Yes. Encryption is easy. And so we have to change as well. And the people did not, in 10 years, pick up on DNS over TLS or any of the other ways that they went forward to DNSSEC. So the point is we have to move on and find a way to trust the network because if people can't trust the network... If people can steal your DNS entries and sell that data off, which is what telcos are doing today, then you can't trust anything on top of it. And if people don't trust the internet, you've got a much bigger problem than just not trusting one app like Facebook or, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah, I take your point, although I still feel like I would like to hear more on how we're going to be able to also implement DNS filtering for those of us who need it. Yes. And my point there is that DNS filtering probably was never enough. It's been a, a good stopgap. It's a bit like virus scanning in the mid-2000s. It was actually not too bad there for a while until the world moved on and then virus scanning sort of lost its edge. And that's what DNS... Right. To me, DNS firewalling has been good and it's been as good as we can get for some period of time, but time times change and we have to find a new way. Hmm. All right. Well, we have a lot of links that you can review if you want to form your own opinion on the subject. Yeah. A lot of people who are doing the We Hate DOH all have this sort of like fairly extreme somebody took my toys away tone in their voice. <laughs> well, a, a lot of the pushback is coming from security folks who are like, hey, you're taking yeah. away a key tool of mine. Yeah. 
Sucks to be you. <laughs> is, is my answer to that? No tears from Greg. <laughs> no, you know, or you know, let's go out, come and come and talk to me and convince me why DNS over TCP would have worked. All right, a quick break to tell you about our other sponsors today. Interoptic, the reliable data interconnect company. 5G, IoT, 4K video, and other high bandwidth activity is going to require smart decisions at the optics level. Interoptics understands that you need a more nimble layer zero, and they support the full range of products that you need today and those that you don't even know you're going to need until tomorrow. Layer zero is more important than ever. Learn how to spec optics so that your network environment can scale with your bandwidth demands and stop paying OEM prices for optics. Start talking to the optics experts who deliver brand equivalent transceivers at a fraction of the price. And don't be fooled by less reliable optics. The difference between generic third party and brand equivalent optics matters. There's lots of cheap products on the market and it's easy to be confused. So here's some clarity. You can purchase the same, if not better performing optics designed by engineers who truly understand what you need at a fraction of the cost. Take control of your optics purchases with Interoptic. Head on over to interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. That's interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. We thank them for being a sponsor. Let's get back to the news. Mm. Uh, Slack, they uh, make the popular collaboration and messaging app. They've released an open source software package called Nebula. Nebula is a peer-to-peer based software-defined networking framework that it provides encrypted connectivity between endpoints, essentially creating an overlay network between endpoints. It runs on Windows, Linux, and Mac OS X. Slack says they run every server they have using Nebula, uh, and now they've released this as an open source project. Part of me just wants to go, that's fine for Slack. And, but is this usable by anybody else? If you read the, the release notes in on GitHub, it says mm-hmm. scalable overlay networking tool with a focus on performance, simplicity, and security. What's missing there is a whole bunch of useful and necessary stuff when you have a multifunction platform. What do I mean? Slack is a single function platform. It's got, right. does one thing, Slack, right? And it has a whole bunch of highly paid and highly motivated staff to maintain that thing. Whereas if I'm in an enterprise and I've got a bunch of let's be honest, you know, mediocre people with mediocre motivations, taking on a tool which just does performance, simplicity and security, but seems to ignore things like visibility and configuration management and ease of use. Do you know what I mean? So, Sure, sure. Initial reaction is that's fine for Google sort of response, but is it usable by us? And so it talks about Nebula being, and I'll quote again from the GitHub page, it's a mutually authenticated peer-to-peer software-defined network based on the noise protocol framework. That is, noise protocol framework is what is used in Telegram to exchange keys from end-to-end at speed and at scale. So mm-hmm. Nebula uses certificates to assert a node's IP address name and membership within user-defined groups. The user-defined groups allow for provider agnostic traffic filtering between nodes. Discovery nodes allow individual peers to find each other and optionally use UDP hole-punching to establish connections behind most firewalls or NAT. So it's a hybrid cloud architecture. Uh, it allows Slack to use any cloud anywhere and to scale up to tens of thousands of nodes because it's so simple it can operate at scale. And this also strikes me, there's a number of vendors who we've talked about on the podcast who do the same thing as a security tool. Do you th- did you see that? I did not. Yeah. So a lot of the enterprise security tools based on micro-segmentation is exactly this. The ability to identify by IP address. The, the way that most enterprise IT tools do it is they integrate with things like Active Directory or they do fingerprinting yeah. of the hosts or they you know, use tags in the configuration data or there's a whole bunch of other stuff. They don't yeah. talk about any of this here. It's just user-defined groups, which assumes that the automation platform above it is doing all of this. So I think it's great that they're doing this. I do get a little tired of big dot tech companies that have got a lot of cash being invested in them using open source as a recruiting tool. Did you read the blog post? And it says like, and if you want a job, come here. So this, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, you know uh, that's great. So you just wrote an entire open source project so you could put a a cheap ad out for recruiting programmers. Is that is that really what this is about? Well, I mean, it's the same thing. It's an issue with open source where folks like Slack that presumably have financial resources and technological resources also are trying to leverage the community at large to improve a product for them. And of course, the turnaround is, well, we give it back to you to use. But as you say, who is actually going to use this? Not a lot of folks. Yeah. Now, the flip side of this is one thing that I struck to me about this is this is a full hybrid cloud networking stack and developed by Slack and giving it away for free. Now, sure, they're virtual signaling and saying, you're like, aren't we great for giving it away? And mm -hmm. it's going to be good career goals for the people involved. But, you know, you've got companies out there like VMware and Cisco producing hybrid cloud stacks and putting hundreds of millions of dollars behind marketing and selling them to you. And here's one that's just been developed inside of what looks like a year or two. And boom, there you are. So the race is on for vendors to show that they've got something better than this. Yes, I take your point. Mm. Throw down a gauntlet and say, hey, mm. check this out. Exactly. And if you measure your vendors against what's in here, this should show you, and if they're going to try and charge you $500 a node for, you know, whatever the number is, $1,000 a node for a hybrid cloud stack, you should just point to this and say, well, that's free. Now tell me what's, what my $1,000 gets me. Well, I can guess their answer because as with open source, it's free as in free like a puppy. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are issues that go along with this uh, in terms of operations, integration, getting it up and running. They, they don't tell a lot about, you know, setting up your certificate authorities and handling all that. There's a lot that has to go on here to make this actually work. So vendors still have a role. They do. They do. But I just, you know, this is those products. You're, are it, 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 yeah. you're right that it gives customers a little bit of leverage. And it also shows how trivial it is to develop the basics. Mm -hmm. Right. They were very clear in that we're not doing anything we haven't invented anything new. We're leveraging existing technologies, existing protocols uh, to make all this work. Yes, that's right. And so if the vendors come down with the, you know, only we can develop a hybrid cloud networking platform because <laughs> we have the 20 years of networking experience or we're the software experts or, you know, what other, whatever other woo-woo they want to come out with in the sales cycle. Just keep this in mind that it actually isn't that hard. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. A couple more stories before we finish. First, HPE has announced a new container-based platform called HPE Container Platform. I love this trend toward just saying what the thing is. That's great. Uh, you can run containers on bare metal, on-prem, and in the cloud. And I think the key value proposition from HPE is that you can supposedly containerize your monolithic apps without re-architecting them. How that's possible, I don't know, and they don't really say, but that is what they're pushing. Which is odd, um, because people have been saying, yes, you could always move your vSphere instances into a container, but a container was, as I understood it, to be an ephemeral element. The idea was you run it and then shut it down on a consistent basis, so you can scale up and scale down. That was the idea behind it. And many of the containers don't contain the necessary code base to actually support all of the extra features. So if you're just going to treat a VM like a container, uh, mm, if you're going to strap an API on the outside of a VM and call it a container so that Kubernetes works, <laughs> okay. okay. Um, I'm not sure this feels like progress. I mean, if I'm going to run a VM, why don't I use a VM orchestrator? And I guess the question is, where do you want your orchestration point to be? Do you want to be in the Kubernetes platform? and you want it to manage containers and VMs, or do you want to have the two together and have another thing on top to manage it, to orchestrate them? I don't know. Yeah, so HPE does say that there's Kubernetes natively in this. They're using the full open source, uh, and they will support upstream Kubernetes uh, as the container orchestration element. Uh, so hooray for Kubernetes. 
they also say you can run it on bare metal or in the public cloud. So the idea is write your app once and run it anywhere. I looked at some videos they put out on YouTube and what the value proposition to the executives is have your developers be able to run one CI CD pipeline, use all the same tools, regardless of whether you're working on legacy applications or yeah, your brand new yeah. microservices applications. But that sticking point for me is how do I get my monolithic app into a container and then get any value of containers and microservices out of that? So that's where I think HP has some explanation to do. Yeah. They, well, they do talk about in the blog post being, you know, this is where they they bought their big data solution. So the combination of blue data and mapper, which is the Kubernetes platform and then the blue data, which is a big data learning or data analysis tool plane. So maybe mm -hmm. they're doing it in that context. They're saying like, but this consists, I think more and more this looks to me like a one throat to choke slash one fist to bump type solution. Whereas HP will come in with the hand holding solution and they'll yes. take the, say the whole thing. And they're like, so sure you might be trading off some stuff to get VMs and containers into the same orchestration engine. But if I'm HPE and I want to offer a turnkey value prop where I'll take on responsibility for the whole platform to deliver or something, then this is exactly the sort of thing that they do well. Right. And the press release did manage that their point next professional services are available. Yes. So I see this as a professional services package then. And that's the way I would expect to see it. I don't think too many people would buy this in their own way. They'd stick with their VMs are over here and containers are over there. And if you need to bring them together, you have another tool on top that does that. Yeah, my feeling is HPE is watching VMware get all over Kubernetes and thinking we also need a Kubernetes story. We're hearing uh, Kubernetes from our customers, whether or not they're actually using it. So let's get something out the door. Yeah, I, I suspect the database and the data analytics is the key driver here. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Uh, they also do mention they're able to enable persistent uh, storage connections, which for your monolithic app is going to be key. And that's clever because a lot of people haven't solved storage in containers. So, yes. And, of course, Hewlett Packard has storage people who can do things like that and bind their storage engines tightly to the containers, which is very important for AI and ML. In thinking about it, I guess I feel like, again, I, I mentioned this before, they're going after the market that has a ton of legacy applications and is thinking about what do I do with these in this new container-based Kubernetes microservices world? And HP is saying, here's a bridge. Whether it's a good bridge, mm. I'm still not certain, but they have a story now that they can tell customers, let's do something with these legacy apps of yours, yeah. or monolithic apps. Mm. I think the one line here, it says, HP container platform addresses the requirements for large-scale Kubernetes deployments across use cases. So what we see today with most people is a Kubernetes pod is a single app. Mm -hmm. And that might be, you know, a thousand containers or something, but it's just one. And then you, if you need another one, you go and have another set of servers and you build them up. You don't share infrastructure between the two because Kubernetes isn't very good at that. You can't upgrade it easily. You can't patch it easily and that sort of stuff. So maybe that's right. it's a step down that pathway. Yes, part of that is also that they, and again, seeing these videos, you can run and manage multiple Kubernetes pods from this HPE container platform. Yes, and potentially even hybrid cloud ones like Google's and AWS's yep. and Azure. It sort of hints at it, but doesn't say it does it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> on the roadmap. That, that, that's got an on-the-roadmap feel right. about it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, links in the show notes if you want to learn more. Uh, our last story for the day, Cisco, they're undertaking internal reorganization to position themselves for a new era of competition, both from the cloud and incursions by rivals into the campus. Yeah, lots of deck chairs being moved around. Uh, deck chairs actually meaning That's what executives. It like. Yeah, <laughs> executive deck chairs. <laughs> executive deck chairs being around. When the deck chairs get moved around, my initial reaction is to 
see if there's actually something in there or whether the deck chairs are being moved around because of financial results. And of course, last week we talked about Cisco's financial results predicting very weak sales going forward and their share price dropped 7 to 10%, which I'm sure is temporary. People do love their Cisco shares and a lot of people are racing in to buy them while they're cheap, according to them. Mm-hmm. Cisco is facing a secular decline. It's locked out of China. Huawei is a strong competitor in other markets like Europe and Africa and APJ. And in the both the US and the European economic economies are being impacted by pol- politics and trade wars. So those, that is a truth. And, and a lot of the vendors are predicting. And the research I've seen from 451 Change Wave indicates that, you know, most companies are trending down on their spending. So... Cisco is just following the trend. I think the interesting thing here is that the enterprise business unit is being compressed even further. So if you look at the headcounts and the moves and the executives that are being moved in and out, this looks like the service provider is being deprioritized and unified into a single business unit while Cisco looks for the next big thing, the the next post-enterprise networking or the post-networking thing. And um, rationalization of the networking, that whole enterprise business unit is well overdue they, they have a lot of headcount a lot of products that overlap it's not very obvious what's happening so george notto from jeffrey's released in his financial report that cisco should be able to keep the numbers up by cutting costs and rationalization and that's mm. exactly what they're doing i think yeah so the changes the main changes are the enterprise and data center networking units are going to be combined into one so presumably that means headcount reductions uh, and Cisco's server business is going to be moved into the cloud unit. So again, uh, yeah. you can look for rationalizations among staff there. Yeah. So instead of the servers being part of the enterprise networking business unit, they're being moved into cloud, which arguably makes sense one way or the other. And the enterprise, you know, tools like ACI are no longer a data center technology. They're just a networking technology. So, and, you know, ACI is not, like like lots of products in Cisco's portfolio aren't really firing to the level that previous product rollouts have so they've got to do something to rationalize and reduce the cost because they built up a lot of those uh, business units were built up on the idea that they would be market dominating massive growth massive revenue and that's not exactly what's playing out here the market's not going the way that we might otherwise have expected all right yeah link to the story if you want to check it out for yourself before we wrap it up before we wrap it up next week we're having a special episode so because it's the thanksgiving holiday in the u.s we won't have any news because we're going to be recording many days early and there's no news between the holiday. So what we're actually doing is bringing in some of the top analysts in the networking space onto the show. It's going to be great. That's right. It's yeah. going to be the analyst holiday party, yes. <laughs> so we're all going to be drinking eggnog and, and whatever it is that special <laughs> Thanksgiving. You can tell me what Thanksgiving food there is. Turkey and eggnog, I suppose. But we're going to get them all together and we're going to talk about analyst-style topics. So the next network break will be recorded early to be published over the Thanksgiving break. It's not like you're going to be able to avoid it. Um, but yeah, look, join us for that because it should be interesting. Yeah, it's an experiment to see how this goes, but I think it's going to be fun. It'll be a slightly different take on what we do, but uh, the folks we're bringing on are smart and opinionated, so we should have a fun conversation. Mm. All right, that's a preview for next week. And in the meantime, we've got a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with SolarWinds. We're going to be talking about application performance monitoring. That is coming right up. Welcome to Tech Bytes, a 15-minute podcast on compelling ideas and technologies in IT. Our sponsor today is SolarWinds, and we're going to dive into Application Performance Monitoring, or APM. Our guest today is Denny LeCompte. He is Senior Vice President and General Manager of Application Management. Denny, welcome to the podcast, and can you get us started with a quick elevator pitch on SolarWinds? SolarWinds is a large player in the infrastructure and network management space. We've been around for years, and we have recently entered the application performance management market. You know, the shtick on SolarWinds is that we like to say our products are simple, 
powerful mm -hmm. and affordable. Uh, and what we think kind of distinguishes us uh, over all the years from all the other players is that we really are focused on technical professionals. Whether those professionals are in corporate IT, we also serve tech pros working in uh, managed service providers, but we sell bottoms up to tech pros. We do not go to the CIO and try and <laughs> sell it on PowerPoint and promises <laughs> and then try and get the thing forced on the, the poor IT guy. What we believe that does, is it means that we have to live up to the, to the expectations of the people who actually use the product. So if the product isn't good enough, it won't, it won't get uh, sold up the chain. So we think that that makes our products really good. Okay. All right. So you've set expectations very high. So let's dive in. Uh, so we're talking about APM. There's a lot of different ways to do it. You can instrument application code. You can monitor network performance. You can look at end user experience. Uh, there's a different couple ways to do that. Synthetic tractions or real user interactions. How's SolarWind approaching APM? Kind of like I just said, we start with the customer, right? So what is that core customer problem? And if you think about it, like a scenario, the company builds a cloud-native custom app. They mm -hmm. expose that app to their end customers. It's great. It's uses distributed microservices. It's got containers. Everybody likes it. And then one day, you start getting customer calls saying the application is slow. Then, then that means everybody inside of IT on the app team, the dev team, the IT guys start looking into it. They get more calls. Eventually, the CIO does hear about it. The pressure mounts. But in a lot of circumstances, the customer just, uh, the, the IT team can't really figure out where the problem is because they lack the visibility. They're trying to figure out, is it the network? Is it the server? Or is it the containers? Is it the database? If, which, if it's a microservice, which microservice? Right. Which customers are impacted? So we think the way you eliminate that nightmare is that you have a suite of products that work together. So the way we do that is we have three products. They Each product kind of grew up on its own, and then we've put them together into a suite. Uh, one is called App Optics, and it focuses on infrastructure metrics, both built-in metrics that come from an agent, and then custom metrics where the end user can go and collect any data point that they can pull with an API. It does APM distributed tracing. It's kind of does the full stack, uh, nine languages, 150 out-of-the-box integrations. It does code profiling, exception tracking. Okay. So, so that does... means that you're dropping agents into the code. So if I'm writing a script or an app or and then I'm putting it in a container in a microservices or whether it's running in a VM or whatever, you put a little piece of, you make an API call as the code's running and then send it off to your APM service. And then I can say, oh, yeah, I can see the performance of this. Or is it more complex than that? Actually, when I was talking about agents, I was saying yeah. if you're doing infrastructure, you can drop an agent on the infrastructure okay. uh, so that you can pull metrics from that. You could also, of course, when we're doing the application instrumentation, we will uh, have you insert some code into there so that you can actually see what's going on um, at the trace at the trace level. So, so you can look at code, but you can also look at the server, uh, the underlying server and how that's performing. You know, doing one without the other is just not going to give you the whole picture. And in fact, we think if you need the whole picture, we also have Logly, which is if you know like Splunk or Sumo Logic, then you kind of get what Logly does. It, it's yeah, uh, yeah. cloud-based, it aggregates all of your logs, got lightning fast search, and it's tightly integrated with App Optics. So if you're looking at some code, you can go and see the, the logs related to it. And if you're looking at the logs, then it'll launch you in app optics kind of in context. Hmm. So you can see, well, what's the 
you know, what's the bit of code that generated this error log? So that gives you kind of traces, it gives you metrics, it gives you logs. And the last thing yeah. is a product probably a lot of a lot of listeners have heard of, which is Pingdom. Pingdom's been around for, for a long time yeah. uh, and doing synthetic transactions, application health, page speed. But we've added real user monitoring, what the fancy folks call these days digital experience monitoring. The simple way we think about it is the two products I, I just mentioned are giving you kind of an x-ray into the product. And Pingdom is really that outside in. What are my users experiencing? So yeah. like real user monitoring, you could say, okay, the folks in North America are good, but everybody in Europe is hosed because their medium response time is you know, outrageous, like 15 seconds. So now that tells me something about where the problem is and that can help me troubleshoot. And ultimately everything you're doing is to try and, and end that slow rolling nightmare where you've got, you know, the app is down or the app is really slow. People are calling in. All you want is either to figure out, depending on, on where you are in the organization, is this you know, mean time to resolution or mean time to innocence, right? So you're like, hey, this is a problem, but buddy, it's not my problem. And then you, know, you go fix it. Because it's, it's, it's very frustrating to work on something when you know it's not you. Yeah. Ask any app guy and they'll tell you it's a network. You ask the network guy, he'll tell you it's the <laughs> server, right? Like it's typical IT, IT kind of stuff. You really just want to know, Whose job is it to go fix this thing? I guess the challenge here is that if you've got all of these different tools, if you've got Pingdom and Logly and you know the, the whole APM suite, and you're, you've got a mix of synthetic transactions and log monitoring and agents generating it together, how do you bring those together to unify them? Is Because if each of those systems is individual, you might be getting alerts from all over the place and you know the world does not need more alerts, so we just need a alert, right? And no. How do we bring that together? Can you cohere them? They're integrated today and we are adding sort of deeper integration. That's kind of our big project for 2020 where we're going to give them a common nav, common alerts, common reports. So they've got some piece of them that are already integrated and then that's kind of where that's kind of where we're going with this suite because exactly mm. what you're saying. And we we've done this before. If you know our our infrastructure and network products, um, Kind of the Orion platform is where we sell all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we took the, the same approach. We made it one common thing for all your on-prem management. Uh, and so we know the power of that. And that's that's what we're going to do with this suite. So, yeah, in my mind, uh, you know, I sort of have solar winds uh, in the networking bucket. Are your APM tools, it sounds like not focused on this group. It sounds like you're maybe going after developers or application folks or infrastructure teams. Yeah, we definitely grew up with network engineers. Uh, the the founder of the company way back in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was a network engineer, and honestly, he just built what he needed. Um, but but then, as the company grew up, we we added more network management, but then we added a lot of infrastructure management. So today, we do servers, we do virtualization, we do storage, we do database. Like if you think about the entire kind of infrastructure stack. We have tens of thousands of customers who have bought that from us. We do not, SolarWinds spends a lot of time trying to make sure our products are very affordable, right? They're simple, they're powerful, but we do try and keep the cost low. One of the things that means is we do not necessarily spend as much money on brand advertising as some folks. So you may not know that we're in that space, but, mm. um, but again, huge number of customers in the infrastructure space. And then what our customers have told us is, hey, we have custom apps too. You don't really... You know, they look at the other players in the APM space and what they what they're telling us is like, 
yeah, those products are, are not bad, but oh my, they are expensive. Some of them are really complicated. Yep. They take yep. professional services. And so what, what they're telling us is, look, you guys need to do the APM thing and you need to make it so that I don't need professional service, uh, that I could give it to you know anybody on my team and they can figure it out on their own. I don't have to send them to two weeks of training, right? right. That's the promise. So that's to us, it's an extension of what we're already doing like uh, there's, I can't imagine a scenario in which we didn't get into this space uh, just because it is, is just part of where IT is going and that everybody is becoming more app centric. Some of that is just because the infrastructure is, that people focused on before is some of that's disappearing into the public cloud. And then what's left is the app. And in the end, you build this app to run your business. It yeah. needs to run, it needs to run well. It's part of this, the network's disappearing. You know, is the network a campus, a wireless? Is it a 5G? Is it a WAN? Is it an internet connection? You know, it's whatever it is, whether you're, you can even be on a plane and be connected to a network. The yeah, old days of, you, you know, the, the, the infrastructure is becoming, it's still there, it's, but mostly what you actually want to do is monitor what's on top. If you don't want to monitor the infrastructure first, you actually want to monitor the app first instead of the infrastructure yeah, as we go forward. Yeah, that's right. You think from the app down and then the infrastructure's not gone away Ideally, it's be, it has become invisible. It's invisible when it works. When it doesn't work, it's very uh, everybody now loses their mind because yeah. mm. you know you expect networking to be like electricity. It's there, you know, unless there's a hurricane and knocks your power out. Like that's the level of expectations. But if you're a network engineer, there's still a lot of work that you're doing. So the the network is everywhere, infrastructure is everywhere, but in the end. All that stuff exists to run some app that that solves a problem for an end customer, for an employee. Uh, and if you're in IT, your job is to like make sure the end customer is able to do what they want to do. Uh, and so you want to solve your problems really fast. You want to solve problems before the customer does. I've had many an IT professional kind of tell me like, look, the worst thing that can happen is I get a call from a customer or from an employee and I didn't know about the problem already. That's embarrassing. Right, so they want a tool that's going to proactively let them know what's going on. So, at the start of the the conversation, you mentioned cloud, and uh, SolarWinds recently announced uh, integrations with Azure with their APM suite. Can you tell us a little more what what integration means? That could mean a lot of different things. It, uh, so, the way to think about that, we um, we already had this with AWS, and it's sort of at all the 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 services that AWS provides, and now all the services that Azure provides. We don't have 100% coverage, but what we announced is that we've uh, added a lot. We've added uh, coverage for like their um, the Azure Load Balancer, Cosmos DB, SQL Database, Redis, so that we can now pull all that data in natively. We can also um, extend our APM tracing to anybody using the Azure App Service, which is really what they've renamed their platform as a service piece. Uh, so with that, if you are running your applications on top of Azure, it gives us a lot more visibility. We, we could always do that anywhere, just like we can still do. We don't have this for GCP yet, but if you're running an app on GCP, we have visibility into it at the infrastructure level. What we wouldn't right. have is that that uh, layer that's unique to the to the cloud platform. But what we have found is that the SolarWinds, the traditional SolarWinds customer is very Microsoft centric. You know, AWS still has a big market share lead, but kind of not for our customers. Um, 
uh, I would say Microsoft's been pretty smart in that they know that Microsoft-centric people don't want to have to throw away all their skills. Yep. So they're they're tempting them into the Azure cloud to be able to have more continuity. And based on what we see with our customers, it's working because they are adopting Azure at a greater rate than AWS. And because we are so customer centric, wherever they go, we go. And so they're 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 heading to Azure. And so we felt we had to offer uh, yeah. the most possible support for it. You have to go where the customers are going and the enterprise seems to be some of choosing AWS, but much more choosing the def- the easier path or the, the path. <laughs> AWS is the path less traveled generally for enterprises. So you're going where your customers are going. Yeah, I mean, look, if you talk to a lot of um, developers, they really like AWS. They were the early adopters and mm. they're very passionate about it. Um, but, you know, luckily uh, Microsoft's catching up. The worst thing I think for, tech, for the technology industry is to have massive dominance. What you want, is a good solid dogfight so that everybody is being their best and that you <laughs> you you know you can get all the things that a market economy is supposed to do only works if you've got a couple of strong competitors yep. so i like i want google to catch up and get in that fight as well because then yeah. we all benefit because they're um, they're delivering the most best things that they can just to compete well, speaking of that, one of the things that happens with cloud services is they start to, you know, kind of nibble away at the edge of where folks like SolarWinds live by starting to provide more telemetry and more data. So are are you getting visibility or metrics that I can't get natively from Azure itself? No. And in fact, the answer is that would be everybody would say the same thing. Like we are pulling the data out of the service. And so if somebody is 100% Azure and they have nothing else and they're only in a little, tiny little Azure bubble, they could probably just suffice with the what what Microsoft offers, mm-hmm. but that's not really what we're seeing. Our customers are showing us it is absolutely a multi-cloud and a hybrid world. So most people, even within an application, will have some stuff, you know, here and some stuff there, and so that might be a mix of on-prem and Azure. It might have some things running in AWS. So you really, if you're, you can use our tools to like get all those metrics and then pull it in together and tell a sort of a more coherent story. And then you can pull in all the other elements. Uh, and I can tell you, we get this question a lot, like, hey, are those guys gonna put all the management vendors out of business? And I, I'll tell you, I'm old enough that I got that question in the 2000s when Microsoft entered the uh, IT management market right. and they didn't put anybody out of business <laughs> because in the end, IT pros are a little more skeptical that a lot of times what they want yeah. is to buy my infrastructure from one person and then I will buy my management from another because that, you know, you don't want it all in one family. Uh, you, you need a little bit of hybrid vigor uh, in there. in there. So I think there's still, it's such a big market and it's growing so fast. There's going to be plenty of room for um, multiple players in APM. And honestly, we're, when we think about this space, we are really trying to carve out what, what I always tell people, we want to be the best value. We're not going to have the most features, kind of not our thing. We're not going to be the cheapest because that's also not our thing. What we like to do is when we get in, when we offer a portfolio of products, we want to have the best bang for the buck. But when you look at our uh, at our products, you just go, wow, that's really a lot of functionality. I can't believe you're charging so little. And so that combo of value and price uh, just is killer for a lot of customers. There's still going to be a segment 
who they are, you know, they're going to drive the Rolls Royce. They're going to have the best of the best and they'll pay for it because money is no object. But there's a huge chunk of the market and SolarWinds has traditionally served the middle market, people who have budget challenges, staffing challenges, where mm. they they really can't always have everything that they want. So when you offer them a great product at a great price, they just eat that up. That's honestly how SolarWinds got to you know, the yeah. size that we are. The, the real world, the small people who a lot of other people just left out. And that's right. You, like, that's you know really, what? The, you know. Fortune 500 is not the whole world. And you would talk to a lot of vendors. You would think that there are <laughs> yeah. 500 possible customers. And, um, you know, we have 300,000 customers. So we know that's not true. Yeah. Um, if you're going to serve a broad, broad market, you know, you, you have to take a different approach. And for so sure. we, we, it's totally fine for other people to, to go after those. But we do think the mid-market, that we have a special relationship with that, that set of customers. And APM is becoming more important to them we think than it ever has for this, you know, it just sometimes takes a little longer for it to get to the middle market. It might start at the very top, but um, we see it, we see it growing uh, really fast lately. So I feel like we've just scratched the surface on this APM talk, but we have run out of time. So if folks want to dig deeper, get more information, where would you send them? They should go to solarwinds.com slash packet pushers. Okay, that's easy enough. Solarwinds.com slash packet pushers. Well, this does bring us to the end of this uh, Tech Bytes podcast. Denny, thank you for joining us and, and thank you to SolarWinds for sponsoring. You can find this and many more fine, free, technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.